Hello and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. The novel coronavirus, or COVID-19, is a new coronavirus first identified in Wuhan, China in 2019 that has been rapidly spreading around the world. As of March 24, 2020, the CDC reported more than 44,000 identified cases in the U.S. The American Academy of Dermatology has developed a series of podcasts on this global health issue, including a roundtable discussion on the need to know science and issues for dermatologists, as well as interviews with experts on teledermatology and the author of a Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology article on steps taken in the dermatology outpatient department during the outbreak. Welcome to a special edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Terry Cronin, and I'm here with Dr. George Ruza, who is our immediate past president and is the current chair of the task force for COVID-19. I'm also joined by Dr. Jules Lipoff, who's the chair of our task force on teledermatology. And we're going to be talking to you about uh, the AAD's resources and teledermatology tips during COVID-19. Dr. Ruza, it is so great to have you. It's been a tough time dealing with this. I'm so honored to have you on the call. I'm going to ask you to give us an update on everything that we need to know about keeping our practices going. And then I'm going to ask Dr. Lipoff to kind of give us some tips on how to institute teledermatology into our practices. Dr. Ruza? Our task force has been meeting weekly and actually communicating daily because this information changes and updates almost by the hour. And so the AD has a website within its AD site for COVID-19, which has all the resources that you could think of that would help your practice. So, of course, there's a big section on teledermatology that Dr. Lipoff will be talking about, but they're also held to have you practice, figure out how you can continue to operate appropriately, which is that to take care of patients with essential and urgent dermatologic needs so that we can keep the pressure off emergency rooms, urgent cares, and hospitals, and free them up to take care of COVID-19 patients. If you're going to do that, though, you do have to take some additional precautions so that your practice doesn't become a potential source for additional infections. And so we have a very detailed statement or recommendations as to how you can try to operate in this setting to take care of your essential and urgent patients. And that's actually been updated, I think, four or five times already. We updated as, as new information from regulatory agencies come up and, and, and work on those. The other aspect is that there's also a lot of regulatory relief that is going on, and we try to track it and help your practices. So we have a state-by-state -state analysis of things such as CME requirement relaxations, even licensure relaxations as far as renewing licenses. Also, the state-by-state -state emergency declaration and what it means for your practice, whether you can operate or not. The other aspect, a big part of this is to do with the legislative relief, which now that we've already had coronavirus 1, coronavirus 2, and soon to have coronavirus 3 relief from Congress. And there are some significant benefits for practices to survive this period, which may last several months. So coronavirus one, there was expanded small business relief, and we have information about that. Coronavirus two, there's been some significant relief for practices that want to take care of their employees and pay them either a two-week or 12-week sick time, which then the government replaces 100% with a refundable tax credit to the employer. So there's no out-of-pocket cost for the employer. 
which can be a great relief because a lot of practices have had employees for many years and to just let everybody go is a very wrenching situation because you really don't want to put people out of work yet you may not have any work for them to do. So these are steps that help and we put information, practical information that you can take action on right away. Even I have to say coronavirus too, for example, the rules will not be published or April 2nd. So you have to look on the website for any updates on that. And Corona 3, that hopefully will be passed shortly. And there is a, a huge amount of relief for practices to pay employees and other expenses while they are not able to operate to hopefully get through this emergency. So I think I've covered a bunch of things. Maybe I can give you a chance to talk on teledermatology. Dr. Russo, I certainly appreciate your leadership on this issue. And, and I know that you've touched a lot of issues that all our members are, are concerned about. Transitioning our practices to teledermatology seems like it may be a heavy lift for a lot of our members. But Dr. Lipoff, you're the chair of the teledermatology task force, and I think you have some insight on how to do this. Can you tell us a little bit about some strategies? Yes, thank you very much, Terry, for having me on this podcast. I really want to help members update and change their practices for this unprecedented moment. So like you mentioned, I'm the chair of the Teledermatology Task Force, and I have been advocating with other dermatologists for years for implementing and the benefits of this. And this is the moment that we can actually take advantage of these benefits. And I know it's intimidating, but I think there are a lot of ways that we can make this easier. So the big picture is that integrating telemedicine into your practice helps fight COVID-19 in a couple of different ways. One is it's reallocating resources so that those who need it get it. So we're not taking up energy in the health system for non-emergent problems. And then we're able to concentrate staffing power resources, personal protective equipment, all to the places that need it most. And second, by not holding clinics and sessions in person, we are minimizing risk of transmission person to person of an infectious illness. So that's the big picture. Going into a little more detail, I would say that as a a task force, we would recommend that we're not having any non-essential in-person visits at all if possible. So the default at this point should be telemedicine. And I know that's very difficult to think about, but we wanna make sure that we're only using those limited in-person resources when we absolutely need it. And this is a process. This is reinventing a lot of the ways that we practice. So I think it's okay to start slow and just see how things are going and, uh, and find ways to integrate telemedicine that may be very important, not just now, but maybe for future in our practices. Any care that we do by telemedicine is taking stress off of the system. So it's not only, it's not only for our own practices to keep us afloat, which I know can be very difficult for a lot of practices, but it helps the system as a whole. And now, uh, like Dr. Farusa mentioned, uh, the regulations have essentially been completely relaxed over these practices by CMS and the government. So it's a lot easier to make things happen than you might think even if you don't think of yourself as particularly tech savvy. So I'm going to direct your attention to find more granular details on our constantly updated website uh, at the AAD. And we have a lot of specific information about 
COVID-19 reimbursement encoding. We even list vendors that have approached the AD offering free platforms. These can all be very important resources. We're also putting out a commentary that we published uh, very soon in JAD that we will disseminate on, on many different channels that summarizes a lot of the specific billing questions that many people have. I'm not going to go through uh, specific billing, how to bill a specific kind of visits in this format, but we will lay that out in an easy to read means. And we will also be very accessible to answer questions. And we're looking for all the different most efficient ways to deliver on that. We also have amazing staff here at the AAD who are keeping up to date on all of the changes, not only with the government, um, but all, all these slight different billing changes, um, not just CMS, uh, Medicaid, Medicare, but as far as private payers, because they're all different and they may have very specific requirements. And we want to make sure that everyone knows how to enact this. Dr. Lipoff, I have a question for you. Uh, I wondered if you could maybe tell our audience about, you said a relaxation of rules. There had been rules about this in the past, but now they can use uh, formats that are actually readily available and free. Is there something you could comment on that? Yes. Yeah, so there are certain regulations that made it more difficult to do this in most practices. First and foremost, it was difficult to get paid and reimbursed for these kind of visits. So right now, for live video visits, you get essentially paid the same as you would get paid for in person with Medicare and Medicaid. And we're seeing private payers adopt very similar policies rapidly, although the specifics you have to look into. So payment-wise, that's really making it a lot easier. There are certain licensing restrictions, meaning that previously I can only see a patient if I have a license where the patient is physically located. So I live in Pennsylvania, but I don't have a New Jersey license. So a patient from New Jersey uh, who reached out to me, I couldn't see. But the government has relaxed that saying, as long as you're any place, basically full reciprocity with all state licensure right now. Furthermore, with whatever platform we use, we have always needed things to be HIPAA compliant. And for the time being during this emergency, CMS has said that as long as you're making a good faith effort to deliver telehealth, they will not be investigating or looking into HIPAA violations. So it is acceptable, if not ideal, to consider using things like FaceTime or Skype that have not met the, the stringent requirements of HIPAA. This is all in an effort to make it easier for people to adapt and be delivering care, improving access to care. Although ultimately, we certainly want everyone to be using HIPAA compliant platforms. Lastly, I'll mention that CMS has also given us flexibility on copays. Even though certainly these can be billed and collected, if that might obstruct patients from being able to seek care, they cannot afford it. While previously it would not be legal to waive copays, in this instance, during this emergency, CMS has granted permission to do so. I had one more comment also that Medicare has relaxed the rules and even they as of today, still say to hold your claims because they're not yet ready. The computerized systems are not ready everywhere to actually accept the new billing, which hopefully shortly in a few days will be remedied. But there are also many insurance companies that are still struggling with figuring out how to handle this, as well as number of states where they have various laws dealing with telemedicine. And so what we have on our COVID-19 website is information about the status in all the states from the various insurance companies so that you can check on that. I would suggest that if your insurance company doesn't yet accept it, 
that I would recommend to, uh, waiting to send the bill in, meaning you hold the claim till they've sorted their system out so you don't have to deal with appeals and going back and forth. So it's better to hold it for a week or two and then submit it at a later date. That's great information. So we'd like to bring it home now. Is there any other important issues that we need to talk about that our members know at this point? Well, there's information and we have the links to that. Of course, if you are seeing patients for the essential urgent services, some patients have to be seen in person. You try to minimize, but if you do, and then what happens when there is a potential exposure and the CDC has some very detailed guidelines, which we have the link on the website too, so you can study that to make sure that you follow all the proper protocols. Hopefully you won't have that situation happen, but if it does, there are resources available for that. Well, Dr. Ruza, Dr. Lipoff, the landscape is constantly changing and we are really appreciative of your leadership on these issues. Thank you so much and thanks for being on Dialogues in Dermatology. Thank you. The American Academy of Dermatology has numerous COVID-19 guidance and resources on managing your practice, legislation and regulation, and teledermatology. Please visit www.aad.org for this information.